I'm optimistic because 4 million Americans are turning 18 every year. So many of them are hungry for a way that they can make a difference that feels authentic to them, that they can implement, that they can make their own. And so when I see them doing this, and we have all these photos on our website of students together working in groups, breaking down their own social isolation and using their hopes for the future of our country as the mechanism to do that, it's a beautiful thing. And that is what makes me optimistic about young people today and the future of our country. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Laura Brill. Laura is founder and director of the Civic Center, which is working to build the foundations of youth civic engagement and voter participation, focusing on high school and in the states that have legal mechanism for pre-registration for vote. I spoke with Laura, who's a founding partner in her own law firm as well, about her work in the civic arena. So after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Laura Brill of the Civics Center. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Time Plots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Timeplot's library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Hi, Laura. Would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. Hi, my name is Laura Brill. I am the founder and CEO of the Civic Center. I'm also a lawyer in Los Angeles, um, focusing on appellate litigation and also uh, voting related issues. I grew up in New York and have been in California for more than half of my life at this at this point, and mostly practicing mostly practicing law. And I started the Civic Center in 2018 to bring voter registration to every high school in America. You grew up in New York. What kind of family? And uh, how did what was your path to to the law? Both of my parents were doctors, actually, and I um, grew up in a family that valued education enormously. I went to an all-girls school in the 70s, and so always thought that anything was possible if you worked hard enough and studied hard enough and put your mind to things. My grandparents on my mother's side were both educators. My my grandfather was a computer scientist, a very early computer person who started the computer science department at Brooklyn College. And my grandmother was a school principal. And so just education and, and being involved in young people was always a great part of what we 
identified with as a family. I went to Brown um, on the East Coast, and I originally thought I would. Um, my grandfather used to say, "You can be whatever you want after you graduate from medical school." <laughs> I think that biochemistry didn't agree with that, <laughs> and um, so I I, uh, I originally thought I would go into medicine, but uh, really loved history and American studies in college, and so that's what I ended up majoring in. I took a few years off between college and, and law school and went to Columbia for, for law school and just worked as hard as I could. I clerked for Justice Ginsburg and for a federal judge in New York before moving out to California. I saw you did quite well in law school. What was it about law school that fit you? Part of it was that I took four years off. And so by the time I got to law school, I was uh, so excited to be back in a learning environment. I just really grabbed onto the the ability to solve problems where justice was at the core of it. And I like the analytical part of it, and I like the part about helping people and that you have real world problems to deal with. And here's one method by which people can solve those problems. I took four years off between college and graduate school. And I found it hard to get back into an academic environment after kind of doing things. Did you have that at all? or I, yeah, not really. I had worked in publishing for a little while and then my, then I, in San Francisco, and then I came back to New York and I taught public high school in Brooklyn at a school called Sheepshead Bay High School um, for a year while I was sort of making up my mind. And you know, standing up in front of uh, 35 ninth and 10th graders is about as big of a challenge as you can have. And so by the time I got to law school, people were, other people around me were kind of intimidated or scared of the professors. And I thought, all they want you to do is succeed. You know, they just want you to learn. For me, it was a good transition back. I guess anyone uh, reading that resume would want to ask you about Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I'm sure you've been asked a million times. It was a, a year, I assume, clerking. What was what was she like? What was that experience like? Yeah, well, she's, um, you know, I think there have been so many films about her now. So people have gotten to, you know, really have gotten to know her. And they do a very good job of showing what she was like. She uh, was, you know, quiet, very deliberative, very careful in everything she did, and also really a great role model in terms of caring about the justice of, you know, where cases would come down and caring about the people, you know, involved in those cases. The clerkship itself was very meaningful. But one of the things I've talked about sometimes is after, you know, after she passed away, there was that 2020 and it was September, right? It was that there was that stark image of all of us standing on the Supreme Court steps for her funeral. And we took turns that evening, kind of standing guard over the casket. And I was there about 10 o'clock at night. I wasn't really prepared for this because the city remembers during COVID and the city was super quiet except for ambulances going by from time to time, and then these water fountains that are at the Supreme Court. And all of this stillness and darkness, we looked down and I just hadn't been prepared for this. And it was just streams of people, like three, five deep, the entire time I was there. And really, I think almost all night long, 
just going by and paying their respects and just has hit me <laughs> since that day of what a huge impact, not just through her opinions, but you know, leading by her example of showing people that they shouldn't underestimate their own potential and that when they apply themselves, they can have an incredible impact. We view the Supreme Court right now, a lot of us, through a very polarized lens. And there's kind of a sense on the left that there was some cheating to get certain people on the court that are on there now. Others, it's just sort of politics and people doing what they do. What's your view of the nine that are on the court right now, sort of generally, much as you can say in your position? Do you think we have a honorable Supreme Court right now that's trying to do the right thing as they see it? <sighs> My experience there was everybody was trying to do the right thing as they saw it. They just were. And, you know, I think that there there's ethical issues that are in the news very, very much now. And people feel um, frustration over the fact that Merrick Garland didn't get a hearing. And then, of course, Justice Ginsburg's replacement, you know, Justice Coney Barrett did get an immediate, an immediate hearing and appointment. And so those things are not easy to set aside. The way I think of it now is partly, and separate from them as individuals, because I think everybody's trying to do a good, a good job as they, as they see it. But separate from their role as individuals, the question for people wanting to stand up for voting rights, for example, or abortion rights or LGBTQ equality or racial justice issues, the question is like, what's the role of the court going to be in that? And if we think that the court's not going to be very protective of those rights that many people care deeply about, what are we going to do about it? It's not just the current very extreme opinions that that's not the first clue. One of the reasons I started the Civic Center was really prompted in part by Justice Ginsburg's dissent in the Shelby County case, where the court threw out the preclearance formula under the Voting Rights Act. And, you know, her her quote at the time was, this is like, you know, throwing out your umbrella in a rainstorm because it's not getting wet. And I think she was trying to warn us, she was warning us that the court's not going to protect certain fundamental rights anymore. And so that's not the end of the story. You know, we have to look for where else power resides and how to get the balance. If we believe in, in these things or, you know, and I do, how do we restore that balance? And it's not, you know, legal arguments are very important. We need lawyers, we need legislation, but it's, we can't ignore public participation and people taking on for themselves the obligation to build as a civic society the norms that we want the court to ultimately embody. If I read a brief summary of your career right, you worked for a law firm, then you started a law firm, a fair amount of time in both. Tell me about the first and why did you start your own partnership? Um, I've always done, I've always been involved in litigation. And so my first firm did, um, it's named called Irel and Manella, a really wonderful firm uh, here in Los Angeles. Um, 
uh, was had a very good career there. I did a lot of patent law litigation and a lot of other um, intellectual property litigation as well, as well as a, quite a bit of pro bono work while I was there. And ultimately, I, a few different things in terms of deciding to start my own firm. I did a bit of a self-evaluation and I like science and, you know, as I mentioned from a sort of scientific background, but I thought it's unlikely without more of a science background that I was going to be a leading patent lawyer in the world and wanted to pursue more other kinds of litigation, other intellectual property litigation that wasn't patent related. That was the main reason and wanting to be start something entrepreneurial and be at a smaller place. So I started my current law firm in 2009. It's called Kendall Brill and Kelly, and we've got a really great smaller platform for doing high-end litigation work. Tell me about what you learned in starting that enterprise and getting it to work. I've talked to entrepreneurs in many arenas, occasionally lawyers that have started their own things, but what was it like? What were the difficulties in making it successful? Yeah, I think that's interesting. I think that we had an, um, you know, the biggest the biggest challenge for lawyers, especially lawyers, do not typically have a, you know a lot of background in uh, you know uh, entrepreneurial effort. It's very client focused as opposed to institution building often. And um, so I think it's, and I think it's when you have a client orientation, it can be hard to think of like, how do you get your brand out and how do you just tell the world who you, who you are? Um, we had a number, you know, we were very lucky in terms of having people who had great reputations already in the legal community Um and so, and, and clients who were very loyal. So having loyal clients was the biggest boost to, you know, to starting and being successful from the start. How did you find the people? Was it sort of a collective idea? We want to do this. Did you go find them? We started as a group and then people came to, to us over time because they knew us or, you know, somebody, somebody knew us. So a lot of it was, a lot of it was um, word of mouth and relationships, which is a lot of how things grow anyway. Yeah. yeah. Did you have the role of sort of speaking for the enterprise or was that shared among a lot of people or how did, how did you arrange that? Um, that's interesting. I, I think we all spoke to our individual communities. It's very client focused. So I was probably the person who did the most in terms of voting rights and, and working with clients who had voting related issues and other public agency representations. Um, and then within the entertainment industry, different people had different expertise and different relationships. It's a lot of individuals bringing in and talking to their own communities. I guess I know a little bit about voting rights practice in the legal world. I have friends who are expert witnesses in redistricting cases or voting rights cases more from the political science world or statistical world, and occasionally also lawyers. What were some of the examples of things that you got involved with in the voting yeah. rights space? Well, I've done um, representing uh, Los Angeles County in redistricting litigation and in litigation relating to their election laws, so how they will do redistricting. And um, 
that's part of it. There's a current uh, lawsuit that's pending right now before the California Court of Appeal about whether a charter amendment that allows unrestricted, locally generated uh, county funds to be used for purposes of community investment and not for police services and prison services, for example. And so there's a police union that's suing over that and um, arguing about whether or not that's a permissible charter amendment under the California Constitution. So it comes up in different public entities have to deal with election related issues and in a variety of different contexts. So why is that area something that you have passion around? Well, I think because of the connection to democracy in general, and I think it's incredibly interesting to think about the laws by which we govern ourselves in terms of our democracy. So that's, I think that's the fundamental um, question and how we make those laws fair for everybody. What was the impetus for starting that nonpartisan civics enterprise? So, you know, after the 2016 election, we were seeing so many challenges to our institutions and overt calls to racism, calls to not respecting the independence of the courts, you know, many other things that were that were troubling, obviously. And and I thought, you know, I got my own kids were 16 and 15 at the time. And I just got curious of why hadn't more young people turned out in that election. And so I started, first of all, I Googled it. And, you know, when you do that, you hear young people are on their phones, they're apathetic, they're self-centered, they don't care. I think it was partly having teenagers myself and thinking, gee, they're not, yeah, they're on their phones a lot, but they're not more apathetic than a lot of older people I know. (laughs) And maybe this is just a stereotype. Maybe this isn't true at all. And so I picked up the California election code and thought maybe that will have some clues about why young people didn't register to vote. And then I found pre-registration, that young people in California can pre-register to vote when they're 16. And this was just a big shock to me because I, you know, as I said, I've done a fair amount of election law and with involved in legal circles. And I had no idea that this law existed despite my kids being about to be the age when they could take advantage of it. So I started... I just got very curious. I started talking to all the parents and teachers and educators I knew about whether they knew about it and nobody knew about this law. So I thought, gee, that's not not a very good law if nobody knows about it and nobody's using it. And I just started, I did, I did a series of public records requests to try to find out how different school districts were using the law and there were other legal requirements like that every high school in California is obliged to have a person responsible for distributing voter registration forms. So I did this public records request like, well, who's the person? I thought I'd get this big list. And almost no schools had appointed a person. No one was complying. 20% or something were complying with this law. So it was one step after another. Look, right now, there's 17 states that allow pre-registration at 16, and that accounts for half of the 
students in the country are in states where they can pre-register at 16. I mentioned pro bono litigation that I had done at my at my old firm. We did a a case where we represented students in a um, a GSA, what was then called Gay Straight Alliances. Now it's called Gender and Sexuality Alliances. But there were students in Orange County, California, who wanted to form a Gay Straight Alliance back in 1999. And um, their school district wouldn't allow them to do it. And so we sued at that time and got what was the first preliminary injunction in the country requiring a school district to allow a GSA to meet on campus. And now there are about half of the schools in the country have GSAs and they're accredited for making the climate better for obviously LGBTQ students, but also everybody because they open the door to, it's okay to be different. And just the influence of that seed growing and the idea of young people having an activist role and being able to, you know, as they're coming of age, being able to be welcomed in democracy, it seemed to me, you know, and having experience as a high school teacher before law school, it's like, this should be happening in high school. 40% of kids don't go on to college. They're right there. They're coming of age. And so, you know, everybody says, well, we don't know where to find the 18-year-olds. Where are they outside of college campuses? And maybe we don't know where they are, but we know where they are, where they're 17 and they're 16. So that's that's how it got started. It sounds like that wasn't happening much, even with that law in California. Has that changed? Is there a much higher compliance with the law as of now, or has it been a big struggle? There's higher compliance with identifying the person who's required to distribute the forms, in part because of COVID and because it's taken a very long time to start opening people's eyes to this being a real possibility and to, frankly, having the funding to to do what really needs to be done in the area. And I can talk a little bit about how we're, you know, how we're addressing the problem. But most high schools continue to do little or nothing to get their students registered to vote. And in part, this is COVID related, right? I mean, schools are accountable. School districts are accountable. Ultimately, we don't want to, they, they need the resources though, too. They don't have the training. They don't have somebody give, providing them the expectation. They don't have it institutionalized. So that's where, that's where we're trying to help them change. And what is it that you've created? Have you made an institution yourself or with a staff, with materials, with assistance to these uh, high schools? We've done a number of different things. Right now, the, the problem has many different facets, but we're focused on data and drives and um, and drives, meaning student led, educator supported voter registration drives within the school. So it can be like a student newspaper, like a GSA, like prom, something that just gets embedded in high school and happens every year and where students can take on a leadership role in making this happen. So we have a staff, a small staff that's incredible, and we provide one-hour workshops that people can attend remotely. And then we do a variety of other training sessions where we train students and educators in how to organize within their high schools and um, embed high school voter registration drives. We've created two tentpole national events that with the concept of High schools should be doing this twice a year. They should be doing it in the fall 
in advance of voter registration deadlines because many students are old enough to um, register while they're still in high school. And that's when all the energy (laughs) and attention is. And then once in the spring before graduation, because after graduation, then they're gone. So the fall is high school voter registration week and the spring is cap, gown and ballot. We work with many different partners in local communities to, you know, to make this happen. The data piece, uh, there's a very big measurement problem in this work because young people are not in the voter file until they turn 18. So even in pre-registration states, it's, it's hard to get a handle on, on who they are. So we created a way to measure voter registration rates of 18-year-olds by school district as kind of a proxy for this, as indicating how did the school district do in getting their students registered to vote in the first election in which they're eligible. And we're working on getting as many of these as possible and disseminating them as broadly as possible. And they're very effective in being able to measure change over time as a result of different programs and just being very motivating because people look at this and see why is my school district at 20%? The numbers in general are, are very shocking in terms of how low 18-year-old registration is. People kind of assume, oh, you turn 18 and you just register to vote. That's not what the numbers show. I mean, pre-registration would be one of many variables that would increase the likelihood that someone would register at 18 and vote. Have people studied how much difference it makes between states that have this law that don't, between states that have the law and implement it well in certain districts? Like, how do you estimate how much value this actually has? Yeah, there's a number of different attempts that have been made. There's two scholars, John Holbein and Sunshine Hilligus, who have a book called Making Young Voters. Do you know I them? Saw, I saw you wrote a review of it at one point. Yes. Yeah, so they both, I, I don't have the, uh, the number offhand, but they both attribute increased registration and turnout to states that have pre-registration laws. We did, we did a big study in Los Angeles County in 2021, and Los Angeles County has more than 50 school districts. Again, we used public records requests where we asked them to provide us with the documents describing their implementation of different state laws relating to pre-registration and, and voter education. And what we found was some school districts gave us nothing at all, even after multiple requests. Some school districts had a huge amount of work that they had done. Many districts were in between. We evaluated the, these responses and plotted them against the voter registration rates for the 18-year-olds in their districts. And there was a very strong correlation between the school districts that were implementing pre-registration and and including it in their work and those who were um, doing nothing. And some states, for example, we've just looked at New York State, where they have pre-registration at 16, and only 16.5% of the students statewide are taking advantage of it. But there's huge variation within that. There are some districts with over 60% pre-registration, and the Bronx has 3% pre-registration. 
and all of New York and the surrounding suburbs, it's it's quite low. So it really depends. It's both having the law and using the law as far as best I can say. If there's 17 states that have the law, there's 33 states that don't. Has the number of states that have it changed over the time that you've been doing this? When I looked at the list, it was like mostly blue states with a few exceptions that had the law. But as you are, I'm certain aware, we've had some states making it easier to vote and some states making it harder during this time period. How is this fitting in? Yeah. Well, so, so a couple of things. One is I do think it's important. So Utah has pre-registration at 16, Florida, North Carolina, Maine, Colorado, Louisiana. So it, you know, it should be, and we regard it as a good government law that we should all be using to welcome young people into democracy in an efficient and equitable and inclusive way. Since we started in 2018, Virginia, New York, most recently Minnesota, have all enacted pre-registration laws. So it's moving in the right direction. There are efforts in Michigan and Pennsylvania now to also enact pre-registration at 16. Within those states that don't allow it at 16, about half of them allow at least a year before a first election where someone can register to vote. So it's not just 16 or, you know, almost no time. Most states, I think it's 35 or 36 total, give you at least a year in which you can register to vote before a first election. And then, then there are some real problem states like Texas, for example, where you can't submit your voter registration form until you're 17 years and 10 months. And that's because, of course, everybody has birthday cards that they send on that date to their friends to remind them. But but even in Texas, you know, even in one of the states that's make, trying to make it as hard as possible to vote, most young people are old enough by the time they graduate from high school. And so what we've been all about saying is like, yes, we do need to fight all of this voter, all of these voter suppression laws. They're undermining our democracy and cynically, you know, make, just trying to leave people out. At the same time, we have to use what we have. And this is an opportunity, even in Texas. When you look at states like California and New York that have passed this kind of law and that are nominally pushing it, is there active resistance to implementing the law? Or is this sort of passive? We can't, we don't, it's another mandate we can't handle everything. We don't even know about it. It's interesting. I do think I will just revert back again to COVID. I think a lot of like during COVID, we were not pressing hard for school. To, we were pressing hard for students and educators to do the work. But we realized, look, if we're, we're not going to get anywhere with school districts saying that this is what they should be focused on now, they can't even get their kids back to, you know, back to school yet and dealing with all their mental health issues. In California, um, the legislature passed a bill in 2019 to implement pre-registration and to, to require it in high schools. And our governor vetoed it. We don't really know why. His veto statement said that it was because it was happening anyway. It wasn't really happening anyway. We think that it is money because if you have a state mandate, then the school districts can go to the state and demand funding to get their costs covered. Ultimately, I think that's likely the reality behind it. That's not what his veto message said. Is it that expensive? It shouldn't be. It should be a matter of training. There's there's an expense in training. 
there's there shouldn't be much of an expense in implementing it because you're in school anyway, you're having assemblies anyway, or you're having homeroom. There's time being spent anyway, so it should not be a large expense to schools once the training is accomplished. It's not the first progressive law that I've heard of in being vetoed by that governor. I'm not sure I understand uh, what's going on there behind yeah. the scenes there. I'm not, I'm not sure, but, but regardless, it's, it's most, honestly, it's most, the reason that we're focusing on data and drives is because we have to build the political power and the muscle to create the demand for what should be happening anyway. And people, you know, there shouldn't even be registration most likely anyway. Right. Or it should be part of just voting you know, you go in and you register and you vote together as you can in certain places. Yes. I mean, it should be so much easier, right? I totally agree. It's, it's just an obstacle for, you know, in many places. And same-day registration is a huge benefit to young people because some states have laws where you can't register if it's 30 day, within a 30-day window of an election. And students are just, you know, really, and, and everybody is really just starting to focus during that window. So what I kind of like to say is like, we can't let the great be the enemy of the good here, right? It would be amazing if this were something that would happen automatically as an administrative matter, like when you start your senior year of high school, so, you know, something you know, and college. All these, all of these opportunities should be much smoother, less friction. But we're in the world where we are, so let's both make the progress given where we are, and then use that to get to a better. You would think, system. like, if there's a, if you have to have a vaccine to go to school, there's, a, or you have to get a have your dental appointment or there's a lot of things that you have to do to start school. You could just add it to that list theoretically. Right. And you could add it to that list at the time of registering for high school. You could add it to the graduation list. There's, there's many easy. It seems like the school could just do it for you. You know, they got a list, submit it. Yes. From your, I'm just saying from your <laughs> lips to, to, we haven't seen that. Um, I'll t- actually, I'll tell you one other, you know, a part of this is in the National Voter Registration Act, which is the motor voter law that right makes this um, automatic and an opt out in some states at the DMV. A couple of years before that law was passed, there was another similar law that was introduced that didn't get passed that had high schools serve as a function of the DMVs. It was required for high schools to be voter registration agencies. And that didn't pass. So if that law had passed in in 1989, 1993, we'd be in a totally different position now. States opting in and requiring their high schools to serve as voter registration agencies, that would go a long way. I don't think a lot of people realize just how complicated the many layers are of this democracy and how many of them are working well or how many are, are not. Yeah. yeah, well, people, do, that's true. I think people don't realize right how many different agencies have a hand in just voter registration in this very simple, right? You've got a federal layer, you have state layers, and then we have county registrars. And then down at the, you know, down, we have these school district officials. And, and can I just give you one crazy anecdote that we've learned in New Hampshire, you have to register to vote in person. And they have a position called the supervisor of the checklist, and the supervisor of the checklist, you know, is like each town has one and, and, you know, you go and see 
Sally or Bob and, and they, you know, sign you up to register. And, so. and that may, may make a little more sense in a rural area where everybody knows everybody, but it does sound not workable in Los Angeles for sure. But, yes. Well, we would need a lot of supervisors. Yes. You mentioned partners in this that you have a lot. And I think I saw on your website, a list, icons of them and so on. Who has actually been helpful in moving this forward particularly? Yeah. Well, we've worked with a lot of different, um, a lot of different groups. I'll spotlight, um, I'll spotlight a couple. There's a student-led organization called Rhizome. The head of that is the guy who introduced you. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Jacob Merkel. So, so, um, so we're working very closely with them and their model is to really create, um, you know, like I was describing chapters within schools that do more than voter registration. They have a whole civic engagement program for, for them. But so we work very closely with them on the registration part of this. We're working with a group called um, Civics Education Beyond Voting in Arizona to do work in Arizona. We're working with a group called PA Youth Vote in Pennsylvania. It was started by a high school teacher and focuses on high schools in Pennsylvania. We've done a lot of work with, um, do you know, I don't know if you know, Junior State of America, which is, uh, and the YMCA Youth and Government Program. Both of these are, are, have like a mock state legislature program. The boy state and girl state. It's like that. It's like that. They have, yeah, they have chapters all over the country. So we've done trainings for both their students and their educators. There's a group called Girls Learn International that also has chapters in many organizations and March for Our Lives, which also has chapters. So we'll do a training for these students where we'll talk about voter registration and then they'll talk about whatever issue they're most focused on as a way to encourage their existing chapters to do voter registration work. So you've done this, I assume, as sort of a side project while being a rather prominent lawyer. How has it been for you as part of your life and how, how do you feel like it's going and why are you yeah. still doing it? Yeah. It's hard. It's not, it's not easy to do, to do both. You know, I try to set aside, you know, chunks of time and to just, you know, to be as available as I can to, you know, to, to everybody and to make it, to make it as seamless as possible. Is it perfect? It's not, it's probably not perfect, but. Well, if, if you were advising another person, you know, working at a law firm or I don't know, business consultancy, someone who had some time and some resources and wanted to do this kind of political startup to make a difference, uh, in this case, a nonpartisan difference, what would you suggest after the learnings that you've had from trying to make this happen? What would you tell other people about how to go about it? Yeah, I would say that the single thing that's been the most helpful to me is having great teams in both places. You can't do everything yourself and sort of having as clear a picture as you can and being able to delegate well is probably the single thing that makes a difference. Do you have an executive director sort of person? No, I I serve as the the CEO. Yeah. Yeah. So who so who runs the day to day or is there a person yeah. doing? It? Well, we have a number of different volunteers who play a very a very active role in in you know segmented parts. So um, and then we have our staff is I have a, a really capable assistant who you know helps me run a lot of the administrative uh, work and then we have a director of youth programs 
We just hired a Midwest regional director. There are lots of voter registration mission organizations out there. I'm sure you've run across a a number of them. Do some of them also focus on pre-registration or are you guys sort of main people in that area? There are some people who have had a different approach to pre-registration. There's nobody else who's combining like drives and data in the way that we are and seeking to just get really embedded in local communities with local organizations. So there are a lot of college groups. There are, there are quite a few people working on college campuses and we work very cooperatively with them in general um, you know, it's it's not an easy thing to just say, oh, well, they should be handling high schools too, because it's different administrations, it's different rules, parents are involved in high schools, and they have a lot on their plate just dealing with colleges. So it's pretty separate from them. My younger daughter is entering high school this fall. If she or someone like her wanted to be involved in this kind of thing, how would they go about it or how would anyone else trying to assist your organization or help people get registered young enter this? First of all, I hope she will do it. That would be wonderful. We run run a drive workshops um, about every week and they are listed on our website under, I think they're on our about page or, or get involved. You could go to run a drive workshop and our website is thecivicscenter.org. So she just go sign up for one of those trainings. And um, if she went after that, when she learns how to run the drive, she gets students and an educator as a faculty advisor at her school. They register their drive. And in the fall, we'll send her our Democracy in a Box toolkit so she can have stickers and pens and swag to, to run the drive. Depending on where she lives, as we're gaining in funding, we're, we have the ability to do more in-person events. And so we're looking to do several different day-long training events in the fall to bring everybody together to do their plans and make their posters and, you know, have a feeling of community about this work. So, but the starting place is go to the website, go to the Run a Drive workshop and, and sign up and get started. For adults who are not, educators can go to the same workshop to get the same training and, and come in in the same way. And then for other volunteers who want to do things like send postcards to young people or, or letters and things like that, uh, or who want to hold, host a house party to get other people to know about our work, we have a volunteer toolkit also on the website that explains those different opportunities. And of course, we welcome donations to help us grow this work. Is there a question I should have asked you that I failed to? I don't think so. You could, I'll tell you why I'm optimistic. Do you want to know why? Yeah, why are you optimistic? Why I'm optimistic? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm optimistic because 4 million Americans are turning 18 every year. So many of them are hungry for a way that they can make a difference that feels authentic to them, that they can implement, that they can make their own. And so when I see them doing this, and we have all these photos on our website of students together working in groups, breaking down their own social isolation, and using their hopes for the future of our country as the mechanism to do that, 
it's a beautiful thing. And that is what makes me optimistic about young people today and the future of our country. It is helpful to run into that, isn't it? Thank you very much for taking the time today. Uh, anything else you want to say? No, but thank you so I really want to thank you so much. This has been such a beautiful conversation. For me too. Thank you. That was Laura Brill. Laura is at thecivicscenter.org. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere, and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.